Well, good morning. It's always a pleasure to be able to fill in for Rod. It always kind of feels like part of us is missing whenever someone's gone like that, you know? Which might tie into the sermon. Just keep your ears open. (laughs) Wink. Psalm 133 is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to go ahead and flip there. The psalm today is a simple one. It's only three verses. Um, But it's depicting the beauty of God's people dwelling in unity. And you know what? I debated... What, how much I should talk about like the analogies of war and fighting with the church and living in the world. Um, and I don't think we can avoid that. So there will be definitely <clears throat> some cross references there. But like I said, it's a simple psalm, just three verses depicting the beauty of God's people dwelling in unity. However, there's much to be said about God's people being unified. And just to open this up, think about the unity. It's starkly different than what we see in our world today. No matter which direction we may turn, we find major fault lines in our society. Being part of a unified body of believers is viewed as shameful in our world. An act of bigotry, if you will. Of course, this is largely due to the loss of morality and welcoming of sin in the world, the chaos that comes with that. But we as a church, we are in a constant battle, waging war against the schemes of the devil, as Paul says. If you've been asleep for the battle, it's time to wake up. Let me remind you that, like Paul says in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In an article I read this week, the author awakened the reader to the reality that you and I are on one side of the battle. Either you fall and pray to the tactics of the enemy Maybe passively allowing the wickedness to proceed or fighting directly against God. Or you're fighting for the Lord, remaining strong in him and in the strength of his might. Wake up, brother and sister. For the enemy wants you to sit by idle as wickedness runs rampant. But if a believer this morning, you have resurrection power in Christ. We must stand as a united body, taking up the full armor of God, recognizing the schemes of the devil, submitting to God and living in the strength of his might, like Paul says. Pray without ceasing. Call in dependency upon the Lord as he delivers like an airstrike on this land. As Paul urged the Ephesian Christians, keep alert with all perseverance. We as a church lead a united life in contrast to the world. A body of believers that refuses to divide because we're united in the common bond, the blood of Christ. We know and experience authentic love, love that is sacrificial and forgiving. We know that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge 
and the path of upright living, the understanding of truth and light is found in him because he is the way, the truth, the life. Now, the picture we receive from this psalm this morning is the people of God dwelling in unity and functioning how God has designed them. And this is a great demonstration to how we as a church are to function. Therefore, the purpose of this sermon is to understand what the unity of the church looks like. And my hope is that through the proclamation of the truth, we will see that the people of God are designed to dwell in unity. The unity of God's people is pure and consecrated. And in the unity of Christ is life. So let's read the passage this morning, Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord, apart from you, we are nothing. We are just divided individuals. But in Christ, we are one body. Unified in this bond, in the blood of Christ. God, thank you for the sacrifice that you've made. Please be with us as we go through the text. Lord, that we would see what it looks like to live as a body in unity. In your name, amen. To provide some background to this psalm, research shows that this is a song of ascents. You can see that at the top of the psalm there, which means that this is a collection of 15 psalms, chapters 120 through 134, and they include anything like corporate laments, songs of confidence, thanksgiving hymns, a song of celebrating Zion, wisdom psalms, that's what this one's considered, a royal psalm is in this group, and a psalm of liturgical occasion is, is what the research says. Some traditional Jewish interpreters have suggested that these were songs sung on the steps, either in parts of the temple or up from a spring that was located in Jerusalem. Others have taken them as geared toward returning to Jerusalem from exile. Now, that doesn't necessarily line up with this psalm in particular, because David wrote the psalm, the temple wasn't built yet, um, things of that nature. But it's probably enough to say that um, it's suited for worship in Jerusalem, right? That's what this psalm was for, going to Jerusalem for worship. Psalm 133 is, is also considered, like I said, a wisdom psalm. Scholars write of it that um, during pilgrimages, the Jews, Jewish pilgrims, came to Jerusalem from many different walks of life, regions of of the country, of the surrounding areas, different tribes, and their unity was in conformity with the regulations for the main annual feasts that the Jews held each year. During these feasts the Jews would celebrate and they would they would come together. They held the feast of unleavened bread and Passover, which most of you recall from Exodus. 
um, the Feast of Weeks, known as Pentecost in the New Testament, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Right? These are celebrations that the Jews held. The Jews would have, they would potentially been making a long trek, a long journey across the land um, to be with God's people for these celebrations and worship. This was done, of course, out of obedience, out of God's commands. Um, he commanded the people in Exodus 23 saying, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. And then he explained each of these feasts. Right, so this leads us to our first point this morning. The people of God are designed to dwell in unity. We see this in verse 1. It reads, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It was God's intention for these people to come together and to dwell among one another. After making a long journey and finally arriving, there's a sense of refreshment to be with one another. There's a joy that it creates, a pleasant atmosphere. Everyone coming to one central location, to Zion or Jerusalem. This is a picture of worship done according to God's commands. And with all the brethren together, there is unity, there's purity. With the Jewish people worshiping and upholding the commands of the Lord, they are living in obedience, and this is honoring to the Lord. It's good, it's pleasant. Jesus himself prays for the believers in John 17, that they would be one as he and the Father are one. Let's flip there really quick. John chapter 17. John 17 verse 20. These are the words of Jesus praying for believers, those that will believe in the future. John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Think for a moment of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the unity therein. He is three persons yet one being. He's of the same substance. Now, this is difficult for our small minds to understand, but when one person of the Trinity acts or does something, the whole Trinity performs that action. When Jesus performed miracles, you can be sure that the Father and the Holy Spirit were in and among that work. Nothing can separate the Godhead. Three in one. And Jesus prays in John 17 that those who believe would be one as he and the Father are one. Do you realize the closeness that is? Jesus is praying for us. He could have prayed any number of things for believers. Maybe that they'd have better theology or teach better. But he prays that we would be one. That we would love 
One commentator says that believers' unity results from being united in God. Once unified, they will be able to bear witness to the true identity of Jesus as the sent one of God. And when looking at this psalm, we can, we can gain great application for our present day worship. As we come together, we should come with a common purpose. The purpose of God's glory. We ought to come in purity, repenting of our sin and worshiping the Father genuinely and undefiled. Now I can recall many Sundays, most Sundays rather, when we gather as a congregation here, there's joy, there's refreshment on people's faces. It's a happy time to see brothers and sisters once again. Right after living our lives in the world, which is hard at times, throughout the week, we come together as a united body with a common interest. And our bond, we are bonded in the blood of Christ. And the glory of our Father is why we come together. And that leads us to our second point. We see here in verse 2, the unity of God's people is pure and consecrated. It says of the unity of the brothers, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. I used to read this psalm because it was so short. I could just open my Bible and it's like, there it is. I could read it really fast. And I never fully understood that. So I'm thankful for the research that I was able to do on this. But initially, when you read it, you might think, that sounds a little funny, because today we don't like pour oil on people or things in our worship. But let's look for a minute why that's so significant. Turn to Exodus 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices, the liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. Verse 25, and you shall make these, you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all the utensils, all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. Verse 29. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in, comp- in composition. It is holy, and that shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or, whatever, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. This anointing oil was a pretty serious thing. It was made in a specific way out of specific ingredients. And whatever was anointed with it was consecrated. It was made holy, set apart. 
It was not to be poured on man's flesh. There was not to be any made like it. So get this. If you tried to make something like it, or if you poured it on an outsider, then you would be cut off from your people. This anointing oil was, it was to consecrate Aaron and the priests so that they would be holy and pure in order to minister to the Lord as priests. And now in Psalm 133, David references this anointing oil saying that the dwelling of brothers in unity is precious like that oil. It runs down the beard on, onto the robes. And as it was to make holy the elements of the tabernacle, so it was like when God's people gathered in a central location in obedience. It was pure and holy. As one author writes, the ideal Israel is a community of true brotherhood. Today, if we are here as true believers, we are consecrated only by the blood of Christ. The shedding of his blood on the cross fully atones, fully covers the sins of man, allowing us to be united in him, allowing us to be sealed in his inheritance and to have a bond with one another, unlike any bond that the world has seen because we are co-laborers in Christ. The unity of the church in Christ is like the anointing of precious oil that makes Aaron consecrated, pure and ready for the most holy office of priests. To live in unity is how we're designed to function. In love with the Father and loving one another. This creates an atmosphere of peace. When we're walking in unity, we're, we're less concerned with our own preferences and we're more concerned with the glory of God. Now, many have misunderstood the purpose of the church. Some think it to be a mere country club. Or you gather with people that are similar to you. Some think it to be like a theater, only to be entertained by the presentation of the week. Some think it to be like a grocery store, where you attend only to consume the product. You're just shopping and taking things. The sooner we realize that the church is not about us, the sooner we understand the true purpose of the church. Many that are religious think the church's purpose is just to share the gospel or just to learn the Bible. Indeed, these are essential to the purpose of the church. But as Paul writes, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Are you seeing this? We exist as a church for God's glory. Certainly this includes sharing the gospel, learning the Bible, various forms of Worshipping the Father. And like Aaron was consecrated or ordained for the office of priest, the church is consecrated for the praise of God's glory. Paul often calls the church to be unified in Christ. Throughout the entire book of Ephesians, we can see how Christ is building the church. He adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ. For his will and to the praise of his glory. It says in Ephesians 1 that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. While we were once separated and dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been made one 
being brought near by the blood of Christ, being no longer strangers, but now members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Notice that all of this is for his glory. It's like the Lord's piecing together the church, like one brick at a time, one member at a time with Christ as the cornerstone, the center keystone of it all so that he will be glorified. And so we see in our third point, the unity of Christ is life. The consecration is pure and refreshing. Verse three reads of the unity of brothers. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's not certain how the dew of Hermon falls on the mountains of Zion, but it should be noted that the dew is crucial for the vegetation during dry season. And the image conveys the thought of a fruitful land. This too was part of the covenantal ideal, God's people to be fruitful. That unity is like the dew of Mount Hermon which has the ability to bring fruit and life. Life that is found in the central location of God's people, Zion, Jerusalem. It's likely that the psalmist is not literally talking about the dew from Mount Hermon evaporating and falling on Zion, because these are two locations far from one another. I've been to Israel, and Jerusalem is a lot of miles from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's the northernmost part of Israel, and Zion, or Jerusalem, is central. But the similes coincide because the dew of Mount Hermon is an element of nature that is refreshing, produces life. This refreshment is found among the people of God when they are unified in Christ as their intended purpose. Here the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. In true unity with the brother, in true unity in the blood of Christ, there is life forever. We can rest assured of this hope that is in Christ. And we can now understand that the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. By living isolated from the church, you leave yourself vulnerable to the enemy. He will snatch away what is good, what is life-giving, the gospel. Attempting to live the Christian life alone, maybe intentionally, demonstrates that you do not love God's people. And therefore, do not love God, according to the Apostle John. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, they're believers, but they want nothing to do with the church. They don't want to go to there. They're all hypocrites. And most of the time, Christians encourage them, saying they don't need the church to be saved. I've been guilty of that. However, one of the fruits of salvation is a love for the people of God. It's a love for the church. One way we can see the Lord working in someone's life is that they desire to be with other believers. When I was going to college, I would come home on the weekends occasionally and, and I'd visit. And if for some reason I couldn't, 
attend Ramsey Creek that weekend, I would think to myself, man, it kind of felt like I didn't really go home (laughs) because I longed to be with the fellowship of God's people, to be with my church family. And my real family is good too, but (laughs) to be with the whole family. I love you guys. The Christian life is designed to be lived in close community. Living life shoulder to shoulder with one another, day in, day out, as one body, as Christ's body. I think we should gather more than once a week, quite honestly. We should gather daily, multiple times a week. We should be at the point of depending on one another, knowing one another. As a, as a body, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, Paul says. Every member of the body is important. Every member is distinct and has their own unique gift. But for the body to function properly and fully, we must be unified. We must be together. This passage shows that The unity of the people of God is sacred. It's ordained. And let nobody come to try and divide this, lest God destroy him. I think I've mentioned to you before the verse in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Talking about the church. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. There were times in Israel's history where the priests did not perform their priestly duties as they were commanded. And they defiled the altar. There were times in Israel's history where paganism and false doctrine slowly crept in to be among the people of God. I mean, look at Solomon's life. And we must not be so naive to think that this hasn't happened today in some of our churches. Even Southern Baptist churches. However, brothers and sisters, we are commanded to evaluate every teaching and teacher. And pastors are called to fight against false doctrines with the truth. Oh, but aren't we supposed to all hold hands and love the unbeliever? It is not loving to sit passively by while false doctrines make their way into the church. I need not get angry at the person with whom I'm talking with, but I will throw down their lies and their false ideologies and teachings all day long. We ought to be thankful for the elders and the pastors of this church that protect us from sin, protect us from false doctrines, and that deal with these things properly, biblically. As Paul urges the believers in Ephesians 6, we must be strong in the Lord And in the power of his might, putting on the full armor of God. I love the metaphor here in Ephesians 6 because Paul is referencing a type of hand-to-hand combat. Soldiers armed for battle. The church armed with God's strength. I have a picture, I think, if it worked. Kind of like this. In Greco-Roman society, 
soldiers would likely walk into battle in a formation like this. Right? You've probably seen pictures like this or documentaries on the History Channel like this. Side by side, shoulder to shoulder, fully armed and protected with breastplates all around so that when arrows and objects came flying through the air, the enemy would run towards them. They could more easily and strongly deflect what was coming at them. Throughout Ephesians, I wish we had more time to just go through the entire book, but throughout Ephesians, we see so much unity of the people of God. And think of the church entering battle like this. Think of the church entering the world like this, side by side, with your comrades that you know better than your own blood relatives. So tightly knit in doctrine and love for one another that it wouldn't matter what comes at us, we as a united bride of Christ would not fall. Through the strength of his might, he redeems the church. And he is the champion of the battle. He is victorious. The united people of God is indeed beautiful, full of life. But I also believe that we're called to protect that unity. And furthermore, I believe God will protect that unity. The church will not fall. He will protect his bride. In fact, we mostly see in places of intense persecution, the church grows. The church expounds even more. Because we are God's people. As Jeremiah says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So in conclusion this morning, we have seen what the unity of the church looks like. That we are designed to dwell with one another in unity. It is good and pleasant. It is even obedient for us to do this. We have seen that the unity of God's people is pure. It's consecrated. That he makes us consecrated or righteous by Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. And finally, we've seen that in this bride of Christ, in this unity is life forevermore. We have been purchased by the blood. He is our God. We are his people. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, you do not partake in this unity. And the world will consume you. But we as brothers and sisters must bear with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Fighting against false doctrines. Knowing the truth so well that whatever comes at us, we'd be able to deflect. We are united in one body, in one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. We're united in the Savior Christ. And nothing will stand against him. He is victorious. Let's pray together.
God, thank you for the body of believers. Thank you for uniting us and making us one in the bond of Christ. Father, forgive us where we have failed. Forgive us where maybe we've been guilty of partaking in divisions and dividing the church. But Lord, we know that you are our God. We are your people. We're united in you. God, bring this church close to one another. Let us love you and be one as you've prayed for us, as you and the Father are one. In Jesus' name, amen.